Good morning. We are in a, studying the book of Hebrews together. I just want to mention that the Gospel 101 class that was four weeks is now five weeks, which if you've been in the class, you know. Uh, so we're going to meet again today. If you're here, you've been in the class, that's great. We're going to wrap up the study of sin and salvation. And uh, around 12.15, we will meet in the back. So if you're here for that. Um, let me see if I can. Oh. Let me just get this straight. There we go. That's where we are, Hebrews 8. So if you have a Bible, turn there with me. We are on chapter 8 of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter this morning, verses 1 through 13. If you have a Bible, that's great. Open it. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. There are some in the back if you need one. You can grab one. That's all right. Just get up and get one if you want one. We'll have most of the verses up. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, of course, take that home. It's, it's our gift to you. We want everyone to have the Word of God. As I mentioned before, if you have about eight of them at home, bring some back. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Hear the infallible, inspired, authoritative Word of God. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high in heaven a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice, thus is necessary. It is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow over the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the co- much more excellent than old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have, not, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says... Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And God had a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. This wonderful letter was written to, to, again, to encourage and to exhort and to encourage the people, the church that was under persecution, under uh, pressure to return to the old covenant ways of ceremonies and practices in order to find their strength, their hope, their, their, their promises, their salvation. And up to this point, the author has made it clear that Jesus is better 
than the old ways. In fact, he is the fulfillment of all the ways in which the Old Testament pointed to, looked forward to. And he makes some very important claims about Jesus so that they would remain strong, so that we would remain strong. Strong in our faith, trusting alone in the work and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this very Jewish congregation has been taught and lesson after lesson about the superiority, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Christ so that they would not turn back to their old ways. As we said before, we may not be tempted to go back to the old ways of Judaism, but we are tempted during persecution, trials, and difficulties to go back to the old ways of thinking, the old patterns and habits, behaviors, and and strongholds. We're encouraged by this word, too, to remain focused and centered on Jesus. So far, we've learned that Christ is superior or better than the angels, Moses, Joshua, the promised land, and the Old Testament high priest. In fact, the word better or greater, superior, is used 13 times in the book of Hebrews, and it goes back to actually chapter 1, verse 4, where it says Jesus is better than angels. Kirtan, better than angels. And actually, if, if you have your Bibles open, our lesson, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, used that same word again. It says in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant mediates his, Kirtan, better. Since it is enacted on better promises. In our text this morning, our author is continuing its theme that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priest. We've been talking a lot about the priesthood of Christ over the past several weeks. And the author has been unpacking, has been unpacking the person and work of Christ as our high priest, as I mentioned last week, that really goes back to chapter 1 and picks up this, uh, a, a more of a steam in chapter 4, verse 14, where he simply states that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So hold fast to our confession. It just just comes out and blatantly says it. And it'll continue this theme of priesthood. We're going to learn a lot more about it in chapter 9 and chapter 10. But today, but today, our author will show us again not only why, listen, why Jesus is a better superior high priest. But as verse 6 tells us, why his superior status as the high priest makes his inauguration, the coming of the new covenant, a better covenant. He transitions from Jesus, a greater and better high priest, to Jesus now, because of that, is inaugurates and brings a better and greater covenant. Because it has, it says in verse 6, enacted on better promises. We don't have all time to look at all the reasons why we've looked at for, for several weeks why Jesus is a better high priest than the Old Testament. But just look at verse, just chapter 7 teaches us that Jesus is a better and superior high priest because he was designated, appointed by God, not by legal means. Remember the law says that the Levite tribe will be the priest unto, unto God, but Jesus is the tribe of Judah. Not by legal means, but by an oath. He was designated, he was appointed high priest by an oath that God sworn by himself after the order of Melchizedek. We talked a lot about him, this mysterious man in Genesis 14, who his name says, the name teaches us that he's the king of righteousness and he's also the king of Salem. So he's the high priest, king of righteousness, king of Salem, king of uh, righteousness and king of peace. 
He's the priest king in the Old Testament, which you don't hear much of. We learn in chapter 7, verse 23, that Jesus' priesthood is better than all the Old Testament, not only because of the oath, not only because he is designated high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he is permanently our high priest. He's never-ending. Chapter 7, verse 23 and 24. Never-ending, non-transferable, unbreakable, never needed to be replaced. His permanency is also his power. Chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost, completely, since he always makes intercession for us. His permanency, his power, his, his always present for us. He's also the perfect high priest. Chapter 7, verse 26. He is holy. He alone is set apart intrinsically from sin and devoted to God. He is holy. He is blameless. It says in verse 26 and 27, he's literally without evil. He is sinless both in motivation and action. He is unstained. He is pure. And that's why chapter 7, verse 27, because he is holy, blameless, and unstained, verse 27 of chapter 7, it says, therefore he has no need like any other high priest, like all those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, he has none, and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And chapter 7 concludes by saying that Christ has been made perfect. He has been made perfect forever. And then chapter 8, again, the chapter and, and verses uh, were, were, later, were added later. This is just one letter. Has been made perfect forever. Now the point is what we are saying is we have such a high priest. We have this perfect high priest. Not that he wasn't perfect before, but his work has made him completely human. He came down from glory, became a man, lived a perfect life, died in atonement for our sins, been made perfect. And this perfect one is both sinless in his life and perfect in his accomplishment on the cross. From start to finish, but in his work, he becomes perfect. It's been completed, and now he's our high priest forever. That's what he's saying as he gets into chapter 8. And what's interesting about chapter 8, let me point this out to you. There are two main points in chapter 8, just two. Two main headings, okay? The author is going to continue on this premise that Jesus is a better and greater high priest, what he's been saying before. He's going to continue on that premise. And then he'll transition, as I said, in why or how Jesus' superior high priest makes the covenant, the new covenant, better than the old covenant. Just two headings. But just so you know, or you know you're getting your money's worth, we have eight sub points, okay? Four and four. You're thinking, yeah, Pastor Lou took it easy over the week. Just two points today, yeah. That's where we're headed. You don't have to write them down. You'll, you'll be able to write them down later if you're the two people here to take notes, okay? So number one, he continues on this better priest by saying num- number one or A, his finished work. Look with me at chapter eight, verse one. Now the point is what we're saying in all this. Well, all that Jesus has been, the perfect, the spotless lamb of God who gave his life, all that I've been saying concerning his role, we have such a high priest Who is he? One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Now, as a Gentile, non-Jew, that may just go right over your head. And you think, okay, what's so great about that statement? Okay. Now, remember, the priesthood for the Jewish people was central to their life, central to their worship, central to their faith. 
The priest, according to the law, took the responsibilities of offering sacrifices required by Moses, the Mosaic law, to offer atonement for sin, to, to care for the religious articles, to oversee worship activities, instructing the people concerning the, the ordinances, the things of, of the, what you can and cannot sacrifice. And God promised to meet his people through this priestly mediation. One thing that the priest never did is that they never sat down. Why? Because the sacrifices never stopped. In fact, where there were sacrifices being done, both in the outer court and in the Holy of Holies, there were no seats to sit anyway. They never put a seat there because you can't sit. Sacrifices were continuing. And the contrast is clear. Our author is making this contrast, and it's clear. The Levitical priests of the Old Testament never sat down inside the tabernacle, the tent, or the temple. And the point is clear. The contrast is clear. The point is clear that the finished work of Christ is contrasted the unfinished and ongoing sacrifices of the Levitical priest of the Old Testament. Their work was not finished. Their sacrifice was not sufficient. Their atonement was not definite, but only pointed to a better one to come. But Christ's work is finished. His sacrifice of himself is sufficient to reconcile us to God. His atonement, his atonement takes away sins forever. Notice also where he is seated. We talked about this. The right hand of the throne of the majesty, the place of honor, favor, authority. For Christ to be seated at the right hand of majesty means that he's above all power, all authority, he rules and reigns over all the cosmos. And he can intercede now for his children. And what you see in that statement is not only that our God and our Savior is the better and greater high priest, but he's also the better and the greater king. The priest king we've been talking about. We studied First and Second Samuel a, few, uh, a year ago, maybe now, I'm not sure quite, but not that long ago. And we, we recognized that Many times, many times the cases would be that the, the, the character of the king has consequences for his kingdom. We just studied First and Second Samuel. We didn't study kings and other books of, about kings in the Bible. And we saw how a good king leads the people well. A bad king leads the people into sin, rebellion, and into idolatry, worshiping of other gods. You read First and Second Kings and you'll see that. So the takeaway for us, I think, this morning is simply to know that our better king, the king of kings, uh, who ascended to the throne, who's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, has an everlasting kingdom, and he reigns over his kingdom, over the universe, forever. In that day, in the day this author was penning this this letter written to this Jewish congregation that was under persecution, that was meant to comfort them. It was meant to comfort them, but during this persecution, their struggles, because they were to recognize that that was all temporary, because everything was under the sovereign rule and reign of King Jesus, who will come and he will reign and put everything under subjection to him. But now, they can find comfort in that at the moment. And if we could only stop freaking out, for who's in charge and not in charge in America, we would do well too. I'll leave that right there, okay? I mean, do your duty, but trust in the Lord. Amen? Come on.
The superior priesthood of Jesus Christ and his exaltation seated at the right hand of the Father shows us he is undeniably a superior priest, his finished work. But now his forever work. Look at verse 2. He, Jesus, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. Jesus was able to enter into the heavenly tent serving his people forever. Not in a place made by men, but in the holy presence of God in glory. In chapter 9, the author will pick up this theme and he'll say this. It makes it really clear what he's talking about. Nine, Chapter 9, verse 24, he says this. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. It's holy places, or you have maybe your, maybe your translation says sanctuary, or it says tent, or maybe it says tabernacle. And all that refers to the place where God met his people when they were, were in the Exodus and coming out of the Exodus. God met them, but that was only a shadow of things to come. The sanctuary which Christ is the minister of is the true tent, the one the Lord himself has set up. It is the holy of holies, the place where God dwells. He doesn't minister in a shadowy temple on earth. We mentioned last week, as he ministers, he does not intercede for us, begging the Father on your behalf, on my behalf. Please, please show Lou some love and grace. That took place on the cross. It is the Father's love, the Jesus' love, that sent Christ to Calvary. He intercedes as we pray in his name, as he ushers us into his presence. We have access by his mediatorial work, his interceding work, his finished sacrifice has been completed acceptable, efficacious. In other words, it has completed what it was set out to do. And now his eternal and uninterrupted presence before the Father, which will never, be un- will never be broken, he priestly, Jesus, priestly ministers to us in unending fashion, and therefore he's able to save us and secures our salvation. Listen, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. There's nothing we can add to his sacrifice. People are still trying, maybe you're here this morning, trying to add to the pure grace of the gospel by working your way to God. You can't add anything to the work of Christ. He is seated, work completed, it is finished. We are secured in that sacrifice. It is a finished work. It is a forever work. It is a final work. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary for this priest, talking about Jesus, also to have something to offer. Why would he say that? Because if Jesus has nothing to offer, he, he would not be designated. He would not be described as a priest. Chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Every priest was chosen among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men, that mediatorial work, in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's, that's what priests do. They've been appointed to offer gifts. That's the non-sac, that's the non-blood gifts of, of thanksgiving and dedication. And then to sacrifice, we talked about that last week to atone for the sins of the people. He, he mediates, he stands between, he offers prayers, intercession, and sacrifice to God so that God would deal mercifully with his people. So it's necessary to, to fulfill this high priestly role. Jesus, it says it was necessary 
that Jesus has something to offer. And what does he offer? What does he offer to God in our place? Well, the the perfect gift of dedication, the perfect gift that surpasses all gifts, the perfect sacrifice. Again, chapter 7, verse 27. He doesn't need, like all priests, to offer sacrifice daily, for he did this once and for all. He offered up himself the perfect sacrifice, the all-sufficient sacrifice, the one who covers all sins he offers to God. He is our high priest. And therefore, his role as a priest, his sacrifice, his service to God, all surpasses the plans, the purposes, the foreshadows of the Old Testament. That's what he's getting to. Notice with me in verse 3, I just want to point this out, that Christ's offering is not offerings. Notice that in verse 3? Something to offer, singular pronoun. But the other priests offered what? Gifts, sacrifices. Because Jesus' unique gift, his unique sacrifice is totally sufficient. A one-time sacrifice on the cross. His finished gift, his forever gift, excuse me, his finished work, his forever work, his final work, and now his foreshadow. Let me go back one. His foreshadow work. Look at verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Do you know what Jesus walked this earth 30-something years? He never went into the temple to offer sacrifices. He didn't act as a priest, right? He's from the tribe of Judah. So according to the law, he, he, he wasn't one on earth. But he says in verse 5, they serve the things of this earth serve as a, as a shadow of the heavenly things. When Moses was brought up to the mountain, he was told to erect the tent. He was instructed by God, a direct quote from Exodus 25. See that you make everything, God telling him, see that you make everything according to the pan, pl- pattern Excuse me, that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, Moses, I'm going to show you what to do. Don't go down there and do what you want. You do what I tell you to do. And what he saw, this, this earthly sanctuary they set up was meant to, to reflect, even though it was imperfect, this heavenly tabernacle. And you see what he's saying. The, the tabernacle and temple were a shadow. The official priesthood was a shadow. The, acro, the, the animal sacrifice were a shadow. The feast, the dietary laws was a shadow. And when Christ came, what? The shadows began to fall away. Because Christ himself, listen, he's the reality of the foreshadowing of the things of the Old Testament. He is our true temple. He is our true tabernacle. He is the center and place of worship. He is our true and better high priest, mediator, and intercessor. He is our atoning sacrifice. He is our Passover feast. And when he says that Christ served in this, in this true tent, this true tabernacle, he's not saying that the tabernacle on earth or the tent or the temple on earth was somehow serving falsehood. It's not true against false in this instance. The contrast is true, that which is final, that which is ultimate, and the copies and the shadows that was there on earth. That's what he means by true and not true. It's true what's real, what's, what's, what's final, and that which is temporary. Moses was required by God to make a pattern, to show him. He said, do this. Make this earthly tabernacle. It wasn't, it wasn't that God said, this is exactly what it looks like in heaven, so now you go do this on earth. That's not the point. 
The point was that he was to do the things on earth to show forth how the elements in this tabernacle symbolizes the reality of Christ's coming, his ministry. In other words, Christ's ministry is not inferior but superior because it is real. It is the final. It is the forever. It is the finished ministry. That, that, will, that which was pictured in the Old Testament now has its fulfillment in Christ. And when the new has come, the old has passed away. And here's, the, here's a word of exhortation for the followers of Christ in that day and our day who are being persecuted, who find themselves in a place of despair. We may feel, you may feel here this morning crushed or bewildered, dejected or broken, but our eternal salvation has never been dependent upon our moods, our circumstances, the things that are going on in our life. And the, and the picture that Moses was supposed to, what well, Moses was supposed to do and the thing that pictured the reality is simply this. It's been fulfilled. The life and ministry, the life and death and ministry of Christ, once and for all sacrifice that he gave of himself. His work is finished. It is forever. It is final. And we ought to remember that, that our names are written in the land books of life. We are We have an adversary. We have, excuse me, an an advocate before the Father. Family, that is our confidence. That is our hope. That is our strength. Our faith is grounded not in what we are or what we have done, but ever and always in who he is. The perfect son who gave a perfect sacrifice, who has given himself once and for all, eternally before the presence of the Father, interceding on your behalf. That's what we should trust in. He is a better and a greater high priest. But you know what? It's a better covenant. Verse 6. But as it is, Christ obtained a ministry that is so much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since is it enacted on better promises. I'll give you three things up there, but let me, let, me, let me tell you this before we get into this so you all are on the same page. God, our God, the creator God, is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Can't read the Bible without seeing all that from Genesis to Revelation. A covenant is this oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. Covenants are made between people in the, in the Bible, and, and we make them in our marriage. But in divine covenant, it is God who sovereignly establishes the relationship with his creatures. God binds himself, keeps his promises. There are oaths, there are are signs. They're established by God's own prerogative. Covenants God makes. We make covenants, as I said. We make covenants. Our marriage covenant is one of the things that point to that. The marriage covenant begins. I've done a lot of weddings with the exchanging of vows. Promises. I take thee to be my wedded wife. Take thee to be my wedded husband. For richer or poorer, sickness and health, so long as we both shall live. And there are signs of the covenant, right? A ring. Right? It's not only, I'm not only aware of this to say, hey, I'm taken. But I remember my wife made a vow to me, a promise, as long as we shall live. To remind me of the vow she made to me. And her ring reminds me of the vow I made to her. 
Unfortunately, what happens when a spouse is unfaithful to her husband or unfaithful to his wife, there's a violation. There's a breaking of the covenant. The Bible speaks about divorce for unfaithfulness, Matthew 19, abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7. You may be a little surprised this morning to learn that that's what happened to God. The old covenant was shattered. Why? Because of Israel's infidelity, her worship of other gods, her rejection of the Lord, her chasing after created things, not the creator God. And the old covenant was a marriage between God and his people. And like a man and a woman, Jeremiah, 8 said, Jeremiah 3 explains what happened. God says, for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I sent her away with a decree of divorce. God knows what it's like to be rejected by a lover, to, to be in an unwanted divorce, a separation, a, a violation of the covenant. But here's the difference. Praise God. God is not like us. God is able to remake what has been broken. He's able to keep the promises he made no matter how unfaithful his people are. He vowed to his bride, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. And though they broke that marriage covenant, God has promised a new covenant. A new covenant in which his promises will be fulfilled that's what Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13 is all about. A new covenant that secures God's wedding vow to his people and a better promises that actually secure God's people forever. It's a covenant that God makes with himself. And the author compares and contrasts this old covenant and the new covenant. Now, there are a lot of Old Testament. When you talk about Old Testament covenant, it was the, there was the Abraham for Adam, really, first Adam, Abraham, Noah. There are other covenants in the Old Testament. But what he's talking about here is the Mosaic Covenant. When he's talking about the Old Covenant in our text, he's talking about the Mosaic Covenant. When God established his covenant with Israel, he chose them as his, his, his prized possession. And the law was given at Sinai. And stipulations were established. Blessings and curses. Bless you if, if you follow curses if you don't. But, but family, listen. All God's covenants... There's an aspect of grace. Will anybody tell you, yes, it's a covenant of works, but there is grace behind every covenant that God makes. Remember, God gave the covenant to Moses, to God's people, after they were saved, not before. After they were redeemed and delivered, not before. Okay? And God revealed himself in his law, his, who he is, and gave God's people an understanding of his moral righteousness as he reveals himself to you. I seen the other day, and I think I might have mentioned this once before, if somebody tells you the Old Testament has nothing to do with you today, zero, really. So God reveals who he is, we're his people, but has nothing to do with us today. Ridiculous. You gotta be careful, you gotta have proper hermeneutics, understand the contrast, what the differences are, I get that. But don't let anybody tell you that to unhinge the Old Testament. Don't let anybody tell you that. That is not true. You've got to be smart. You've got to use, you know, good hermeneutics, understanding Scripture, interpreting Scripture. But we see here that even though it was given to them by grace, there was some stipulation. They failed to keep the covenant. And that's why in verse 6, again, as it is, Christ obtained a ministry much greater than the old. He mediates a better covenant. He enacted a better promise. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. See that? Verse 7. Three things he says about the old covenant we're going to look at real quickly as we jump into this. Number one, it was faulty. The old covenant was faulty. God wasn't faulty. 
It wasn't that God had any fault. That's not what he's saying. The fault of the Old Testament covenant was not God. It wasn't like, you know, I gave you my righteous standard of who I am, and you know what? I, I, I really dropped that ball. I, I'm sorry. I failed. That's not, that's not, no. It was our inability to keep the standard, to be justified by it, to be renewed. We are the ones who have failed the Old Testament laws. We're the, we're the ones. The, the Jewish people did not keep what God commanded them to do. The Old Covenant was flawed, not in what God revealed. Paul tells us in the New Testament how God's law was good, Romans 7. But it was weakened by sinful nature, by our flesh, by our rebellion, Romans 8. Therefore, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And now because of our failures, it could not deliver on its promises. But the new covenant was founded on better promises. Forgiveness of sins, we'll look at a renewed relationship. The law, the moral standard of God. When we talk about the law, I'm talking about the moral standard of God. Not the sacrifices, not, not the ceremonial. That has stuff has been done with, away with Christ. But the moral standard of who God is and what he expects from us is still essential, still relevant. We are still obligated to obey, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. The old covenant law, though, was more external than it was internal. We're going to get to that in a minute, which brings us to number two. It was powerless. Look at verse 9. So the old covenant that I made with their fathers on that day, I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. They didn't do it. They didn't have the power. It was a signpost to direct man, but the new covenant supplies the journey, the power to make the journey. It was powerless. Okay? It was faulty, it was powerless, and it was obsolete. Verse 13. He talks about obsolete. He's saying it's losing its usefulness. It's wearing out. And if the old covenant of Moses' day is antiquated, so must be the Aaronic priesthood. We looked at that. The earthly sanctuary, Levitical sacrifices, all that was established under the old covenant is passing away. Tyndale's uh, Life Application Bible, I think, does a really good job by explaining what this means. This is what they say. Old systems old sacrifices, and the old priesthood now have no value in securing God's approval. Hanging on to the old covenant, if you will, warns Hebrews, but you're hanging on to a shadow, a bubble ready to burst, a moment passing into history. The old covenant has served its purposes and will, be soon, and will soon be just a memory. You can't live in the past so your real choice is clear. This is what they write. Accept the new covenant or none at all, end quote. In fact, at the end of that verse, when it talks about, and then verse 13, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, many commentators say several years, not many years, I should say, after this letter was written, the destruction of the temple took place in 70 AD. Possible. Look at verse 8 again. From 8 following what the author does, speaking of the new covenant, he quotes directly and completely from Jeremiah chapter 31. And notice first, who is the one who is speaking? Verse 8. For he finds faults with them when he says, he finds faults with himself. No, he finds faults with who? Them. Not him. It's God talking. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Who's the new covenant made with? Israel and Judah. 
right? I'm not going to get into it, but you see the continuity between the Old Testament people and the New. Remember Galatians. If you're in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Covenant was made with them and includes us, non-Jews. Verse 9. Not like the covenant that made with their fathers on that day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, for they did not continue my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Remember, God saved them by grace. The problem wasn't a lack of grace. The problem was a lack of faithfulness. A lack of faithfulness. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, Testament, Covenant, same word, you find this continuous history of idolatry and faithlessness. But now, in the New, what do we find? What do we find in this new covenant, this promise that God made, something new he was going to do? Number one, we find new power. Verse 10, for this is the covenant, this new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Family, notice what it doesn't say. I will take back everything I ever said, all that I revealed about my moral, my moralness, my, my purity, my will, my ways, and my law, all those ways, forget it. Don't worry about it. That's not what he says. The problem with the Old Testament was principally, it was external. In the Old Covenant, God gave the people's law, but the covenant did not apply, did not give them the ability, no internal power to receive it, love it, keep its demand. Its laws were written on stones, but now on our hearts. Our heart will become the tablet by which the finger of the Holy Spirit writes the character, the will, the ways of God so that we love him from the inside out. For he put his law on our minds. He gives us understanding, but he writes them on our hearts And that's why the Apostle John writes this, his commandments are not burdensome. Let me illustrate that for you. Suppose I came home, knock on the door, I've mentioned this before, Piper, other people have used this illustration, I think it's a wonderful illustration. And I I have a bouquet of flowers for my wife. And I said, you know, I've been in my study all day and I read again in Ephesians 5, it says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And you know what? I'm obligated. It is my duty to give you these flowers, here you go. What's for dinner? <laughs> but what if I came home and I said, I've been in my study all days, and I read that quote from Ephesians 5, and I thought how gracious and good, God, you have been to me, and how much I love you, and I've been thinking about you all day, and here's just a little something to express how much I love and appreciate you. Here's the flowers. Both acts bring flowers to my wife. One is external, one is internal. Of love and gratitude and thanksgiving. That's why we obey God. I've said this a thousand times. Religion is I obey God and then he loves, cares for me, forgives me, and accepts me and brings me to heaven. The gospel is God loves me in Christ and has done all the work and has accepted me and forgives me and therefore I obey. Very big difference. Right? F.F. Bruce. What was needed was a new nature, a heart liberated from its bondage to sin, a heart which not only spontaneously knew and loved the will of God, but had the power to do it. 
I'm writing it in your hearts. What the Old Testament, Old Covenant could not do is give us a new heart to obey and glorify God out of love and gratitude, but now the New Covenant does. This means that if you're here this morning and you have faith in Christ, you've been redeemed, you've been reconciled, you've been saved, and you're under the New Covenant, God is doing this in you. He is working in you, Paul said, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. Genuine, saving faith in the gospel in Christ will always affect our will, our affection, or else it's not real, genuine faith. The Apostle Peter said, we are people who are partakers of his divine nature. Yeah, we battle with flesh, and we battle with sin. We, we battle with old habits and thoughts and, and things, absolutely. But if there has not been this union with Christ and a new desire to follow him, to love him, to obey him out of gratitude, love, and thanksgiving, the Bible says examine yourself. I tell people all the time, I couldn't imagine walking with Jesus not having a new heart and not wanting the things he wants. That's part of being renewed and reborn. You have a new heart. Philip Hughes, I, 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 it's kind of a long quote. I know we're running out of time, but this, this is a great quote. Listen to this quote. He says this. When we talk about law and, and spirit and walking, he says this. There is no suggestion of antinomianism, which means against the law. Like, throw the law out. That's nothing to do with us today. There is no suggestion of antinomianism here in this text or anywhere else in the New Testament, which is the book of the New Covenant, nor is there any antithesis between law and love, a battle against the two. Love, indeed, love of God and love of man, is the summary of the law, Luke 10, Romans 13. And our love for Christ is demonstrated precisely in the keeping of his commandments, John 14. Loving obedience, accordingly, should be one of the distinct marks of genuine Christianity. As the law is a signpost to the will of God, so the concern of the Christian should always be to honor God by walking joyfully in the way of his will, end quote. That's a great quote. I, I don't have to obey God. I get to. I want to. I have a new heart. I've been saved by grace alone. And my response is worship. Worship is, is, is giving oneself completely over to God. His ways and his wills are good for us. Having the laws written on our hearts, wants, we want to obey. And the Holy Spirit gives us new desires. And praise God he does. Are you joyfully obeying the Lord? Are you still looking at it as rules and regulations, something you have to do? Or are you looking at it as a loving father giving us his will, his promises, his ways, and we're walking in it because we know he's a good God who saved us by grace? It's a big difference. New power. Look, new people, verse, two, verse 10c. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the emphasis is on this internal work and this relationship with God. In Ezekiel chapter 11, it's a parallel verse to this about the new covenant. This is what he says, Ezekiel. Prophet Ezekiel, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, a soft heart, that they will walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and obey them, and they shall be my people and I will be their God. You know what the significance is in this passage? The Bible and the Old Testament God called them to obey. Their condition was fulfillment of the Mosaic law, but they failed miserably. But now in the new covenant, by the work of the Son, 
the outpouring of the Spirit, his ascension to heaven, that God in Christ dwells in the innermost being of his people who together represent the temple of the living God. There's a promise he made, a never-ending covenant, marriage that will never fail. We have no fault divorces. But even here, when we are unfaithful and we have sinned against God, God overwhelms us by his grace. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He lives in us. He works through us and completely washes us from our sins. New power, a new people, a new position. Verse 11. And they shall teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. What, what is he pointing to? Let me, let me tell you what I think he's pointing to. We've been talking a lot about the priesthood of Christ. But one thing that we didn't talk about and I want to talk about now is that because Jesus Christ is our high priest who has access to the Father, he has made all of us the priest of God. He made all of us the priest of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, he's talking about the church. He's talking about believers in Christ. You are a chosen race, the chosen of God, a royal priesthood. And a holy nation. We no longer need a mediation. Our, our position has changed our view from watching outside, looking at the temple, looking at the Holy of Holies, looking at the veil that separates us from God. That position, that view has changed. Has changed. We talked about this last week. We're going to get into it more on how uh, you get to the temple, there were barriers. Outer courts, inner courts. There were court of the Gentiles, court of the women, court of the men. There's a place that only the priests went. And there was a place, a place the inner court, where only the, 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 the lampstand, we'll talk about that next week. And then they had the Holy of Holies, that inner place. Christ is saying, chapter 10, verse 19, let me give you this verse. Brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain... The curtain blocked us. That was one of the barriers into the Holy of Holies. He made through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. The priest would enter into the Holy of Holies through this very thick, very heavy curtain once a year, and that veil was torn. And now we have a new position. We're not outside looking in, needing a mediator. We have that mediator who says, come into the very presence of God. No longer looking at the veil, we have entered into the veil. Our position has changed. And finally, we have a new provision. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. This last and great and climatic promise is really the basis for the superiority of the new covenant. Forgiveness, most important possession that we have discussed that each of us and all of us need. John Owens writes this. This is the great fundamental promise and grace of the new covenant. The first thing that is necessary is the free pardon of sin. The word merciful, the root word for merciful, has to, points back to the, to the mercy seat that sat upon the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies where the blood was sprinkled. We're going to talk about that next week because it shows us that that's what was necessary for us to have complete forgiveness of sins where it's final and finished by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. His spotless sacrifice. That is exactly what the Old Covenant could not do. Under the Old Covenant, 
the sacrifices, the sins were never completely forgiven. They were covered. They were waiting and pointing to true forgiveness in Christ Jesus alone. Remember, they always made sacrifices year after year. And what's interesting about this passage, let me just, let me just tell you, God in the Old Testament is a God of love and mercy. Exodus 34, Micah 7 speaks about his never-ending love, his forgiveness of sins. All those things that we read about here is said of God in the Old Testament. Here's the difference. Now it's a covenant. All those pointed in the Old Testament that God spoke about is true of who he is. His character never changes, but it pointed to a covenant that was going to be made someday, and that day has come. And that man name and that God man name is Jesus Christ who forgives us our sin look at it look at it's definite in this in this covenant I will forgive their iniquities I will remember their sins no more remembering doesn't mean that God has amnesia I forgot I didn't know you did that oh thank you for reminding me what it means is he no longer holds it against you you hear people today, yo, I, for, you forgive, I forgive so-and-so, I'll never forget. I'm like, yeah, you never forgave either. Just by your attitude, I could tell. When you forgive, you don't forget. But one thing you don't do, I forgave that person. I love them. I want them blessed. I, I, I have no ill will. I've let them go. That's what it means to remember no more. God doesn't hold it against us anymore. In the new covenant, in the new promises, sin and its effects of separating us from God are eradicated. God wipes away the memory of sin and renders sin as it never, ever occurred. Sin's penalty, sin's power is completely overcome, making it possible for believers to receive the promised blessing. Sin separates. Sin cannot, is incomparable, incompatible with holiness. But God made a promise. He chose to send his son. He chose to redeem us in this new covenant shed in his blood. The covenant made by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why, that's why in Luke, when you read about the, when you read about the, the time when Jesus went to the upper room and had this Passover dinner, this feast of Passover with his disciples. And they were together and they were eating the, the meal as they would do every Jewish home did on that day, Passover, with the bitter herbs and, and, and the retelling of the story. That's why Jesus turned to them. And he took the bread and he had given thanks. He broke the bread. He gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given to you, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then, Luke twenty two twenty, And likewise the cup, the cup of wine. After they had eaten, he said, this cup is poured out for you. Is the new covenant in my blood. Do you see it? Do you see it? He's a better priest. He finished the work. He is forever interceding. His work was final. It foreshadowed, it completed all the foreshadowing of the Old Testament. He has a better covenant. He gives us new power to walk in his ways. We are a new people, redeemed always, forever, secured in the work of Christ. He gives us a new position that we can walk into his presence through the blood atoning work of Jesus. And he gives us a new provision for the new covenant was sealed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why go back to anything else, right? 
when all that is true. So when we face trials of our own, we should look at those trials in light of who Christ is, who is at the right hand of God for us, who made covenant promise, who kept his promise, and he lavishes grace upon us. If Christ had not died for our sins, God would not be our God. He would not write our laws on our hearts. He would not produce a will in us by the power of his spirit to obey him or cause him to know him personally, but he has. All the mercy and grace that we have obtained came through the blood of Jesus. And this table represents that. It shows forth the truth of the broken body of Jesus, the blood shed for our sins. Do you know Christ that way this morning? In just a few minutes, the band's going to come up. We're going to celebrate the new covenant. And if you're a follower of Christ and you've accepted Christ, if you love Christ, if you've repented, turned from sin and trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord, this table is for you to come and to remember and to celebrate the new covenant. You're invited. It's not a king's table, not a Baptist table. It's the Lord's table. If you belong to the Lord and you've trusted in his work, come to the table. If you have not, the Bible says that just let the elements pass. We're praying that God would open your heart and mind to see your sin and his beauty, your sin and his forgiveness. If you're not sure, see me, Pastor Ricky, Chris, after the service, we'd love to talk to you more about Jesus. But as a church, now we're going to call everyone to Christ, everyone to spend time in your own heart before the Lord confessing your sin and then celebrating the new covenant. Maybe there's something you need to get right with God. Maybe, there, maybe there's something, maybe you never really trusted Christ and today, this day will be the day that you will trust Christ completely and solely relying upon his work at the cross. That's my prayer. That's our prayer for you this morning. We're going to come down the center aisles and work our way around as we receive communion this morning. Let us pray. Father, where would we be without the promises you have made? Lord, where would we be without the new covenant sealed in the blood of your son, the perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? We would be lost. We would be separate for eternally away from you. But you, in your great mercy toward us, have given us this gift. His name is Jesus. And Father, we pray as we celebrate the new covenant given to us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will give you praise and worship and glory that belongs to you. For the New Testament, the new covenant has been sealed through the blood of Jesus our better and greater high priest who inaugurated a greater and better covenant. Help us, Lord, to trust you today as we respond now in worship of you. In Jesus' name, amen.